Wow. Uh, you know, I want you to know that when the day inevitably comes that this community votes together to just do away with the sermon part of this whole thing, uh, it'll be unanimous. I'm not going to vote against you. I understand that this, I mean, yeah, this is like, I don't even know what to compare it to. This is like a, <laughs> this is like a U2 opening up for a children's piano recital. It just, the, the order is all wrong. It doesn't make, this is a letdown at this point. Man, good stuff. All right. We are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 through 19 tonight. Allow me to read this, and then we will uh, try to parse some things out in this very interesting passage. Uh, the Gospel of Luke 21, 5 through 19, and I forgot to write down the page number, but there are a few Bibles if you'd like to look. I think it's maybe 1229 ish. I have it memorized, I just can't remember. Okay. Anyways, it says this When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he. And the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you the words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and siblings, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your soul. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Have you ever uh, been really excited about something only to finally get it and be utterly disappointed by it? No names, please. Um, I grew up in the 80s, which means I grew up in the heyday of infomercials. And infomercials were those things that were designed to make kids like me desperately desire things that we didn't need and that were not what they appeared to be. I wanted a lot of things from a lot of different um, uh, of these commercials. And despite my best efforts, my parents would never call the 800 number and offer up their credit card to get the thing that I most desired. Until around fifth grade, when I saw the most amazing thing that had ever been manufactured by human hands advertised between cartoons. And I needed to have it. It was a knife. It was a giant knife. It was a 12-inch knife, a la Rambo. Um, it was everything a fifth grader needs in this world to survive. I wanted it desperately. 
Uh, it could do anything you needed for the oncoming zombie apocalypse, which was certainly to happen. You could, uh, they had a compass on the end of the handle. Inside of it had everything else you needed. Fishing line for catching your dinner, tools to make fire, a wire for cutting down trees because everyone knows how easy it is to cut down a tree with wires. It had a holder. It looked awesome on your belt. I needed it. And it was only available for a limited time. For all six months, they were showing the commercial on TV. And, and this is the part you're not going to believe. It was only $10 if I acted now. I wanted it. Uh, $10 was doable. That was a two or three weeks of allowance and mowing our lawn. And so I saved up my money, and miracle of miracles, at some point my parents decided to take my, own, my cash and use their credit card uh, to give to who knows who on the other end of this 800 number and purchase this knife for me. Uh, now, due to the beauty of the Internet and YouTube, I found the infomercial, and I don't normally, I'm not good at putting you know, multimedia things together, but if we can make it happen, I want to try and show you uh, the survival knife commercial. Can we, can we get that? What you are about to witness may be the most striking purchase you will make. The most striking purchase you'll ever make. This is the Survivor, the ultimate knife with all the accessories to help you survive on your own. Each survival knife is a whopping 12 inches long, yes, a foot in length, yet so perfectly balanced, it cuts like an extension of your own hand. From the razor-sharp tip of the blade to the top of the handle, the entire blade is made of 420 molecular stainless steel. And at the bottom of the handle is a precision liquid compass. You'll know where you are and where you're going. Yes, these are the same original survival knives sold in leading newspapers and magazines across America. They are the best-selling knives of its kind ever sold by us. Yet now you can get one during this limited publicity campaign for the special TV price of $10. But wait, there's more. If you order now, you'll also get the companion survival kit, cleverly concealed in the handle of the survival knife. All this is included at no extra cost. You get emergency fishing equipment, emergency sewing repair kit, emergency cable saw, actually capable of cutting down a small tree, and emergency waterproof wrap matches to start a blazing fire immediately. Yet if you order now, you'll get it all for only $10. And here's another incredible surprise. If you order within 24 hours, you'll get this heavy-duty sheath that you can wear on your belt. It comes with a built-in snap pouch containing a sharpening stone. And you can keep the sheath and sharpening stone free even if you decide to return the survival knife for a complete refund. Be a survivor. Buy the survivor. So call toll-free now and order your choice of black or camouflage. And if you order within one hour, you'll also get this multi-purpose sportsman's knife. To get your survival knife, plus the companion survival kit, plus your free sportsman's knife, just call toll-free 1-800-453-1901. That's 1-800-453-1901. You say five... Details at this point. You can say what? I got the black. I don't know why I didn't go camo. I was, maybe I was afraid of dropping it in the woods and never finding it again. The good news is, if you didn't like it, they said you could send it back and just keep the stone and the sheath. Like, you want the sheath without the knife. Anyways, we ordered it. I waited and waited. And, of course, I didn't get packages in the mail. There was no Amazon at that time. And finally, when a package arrived with my name on it, I was so excited. I pulled it out. It was magnificent. It was heavy and huge. It was like an extension of my own hand. <laughs> and I was so excited. I, I tucked. I didn't have a belt, uh, but I tucked the whole sheath into my little 80s gym shorts uh, and ran outside and found my friends and gathered them all together and produced the knife that produced oohs and ahs from all my friends. We were so excited. And I wanted to show them how great it was. So we had this kind of rotting wood fence thing by our driveway. I still don't know why we had it there, Dad. But 
uh, and there was a piece of wood, and it was, it was really kind of soft wood. It was falling apart. And so I took it and just stuck it in there, and it sunk deep. It was a sharp knife. It was amazing. And everyone was so excited. We were going to go out and play with this thing all day, as, as one does with a giant knife when you're in fifth grade. And so uh, I went to pull the knife back out like Excalibur uh, to demonstrate uh, my kinghood, and only the handle remained <laughs> in my hand. And uh, I believe we had to get pliers to pull the blade out of the thing, and it was broken. First, first fence stabbing, it was broken. It was very disappointing, right? It was, it, it, was the, it was the most, it was the highest high to the lowest low in such a short amount of time for little fifth grade Mike. And I think we all know that feeling, right? That, that thing that we get so excited about, and it's going to give us the edge, and it's going to be this great thing. It's, it's part of why I like so much in the, in the Christmas story, which I'll start showing 24 hours a day soon. Uh, as, as great as that movie is and all the funny parts in that movie, I love the Dakota ring. I love when he waits for that Dakota ring and it finally comes and he finally uses it and finds out it's just an advertisement for Ovaltine, right? Um, I think you guys know that feeling, that sense that if I just get this thing, if I just have the secret code, if I can just have this thing, I'm going to have the upper edge. I'm going to be able to survive when others cannot survive. I'm going to have secret knowledge that others don't have. That's why we buy 12-inch knives and decoder rings when we can get our hands on them. It's part, it, it appeals to that part of our human nature, right? They keep us safe. They give us a secret knowledge. We desire those kind of things. In fact, I think we desire those kind of things so much, we sometimes find them where they don't actually exist, and I would argue that today's scripture is one of those places. For a long time, historically, this is the way I always heard it talked, this, uh, this verse was used and treated as this treasure trove of secret information, this thing that could be kind of weaponized and used for survival, right? If you can just decode the future with, uh, with texts like this, you'll have the tool you need to survive. If you can just know the future, then you will have safety. You'll have power. You can survive the apocalypse that is coming. Right? Of course, that's never what this scripture, or I would argue really any other scripture, is intended to accomplish at all. Setting aside the fact that it would be cruel for a loving God to hide things in scripture in ways that we couldn't find, seems kind of mean to do, this text originally did not function that way at all. In fact, it functioned more as history telling than it did future predictions. Remember, this is talking about the temple. The temple was destroyed. No stone was left on another in 70 AD. And so when the temple that was being admired in this text was already gone by the time the first readers of this gospel even had the story. Now, for those few who heard Jesus say it the first time, this was a predictive saying. He looked out and could tell what was going to happen if things kept going the way they were going. So he told them something predictive. But for the masses that would later read it in the gospel, it was just a painful reminder of the worst moment in their communal lives. It was just a recollection of the fact that the one place that was never supposed to go away did just that. It was the reminder that the center of their religious and cultural and political world uh, just got wiped away, like it didn't even matter in the first place. And not only was it this major accomplishment, this building, but it was where God resided. And now where God resided was gone. In, ver in a very functional way, it felt like God left. And nothing was okay for them after that. 
But while much of what Jesus is talking about here already happened to those who are reading it for the first time, while we may not be thinking about the actual temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, that doesn't mean we don't have a lot we can learn from the principles that Jesus teaches here. After all, we have apocalypses of our own. We have all had that thing taken from us, that thing that was never supposed to disappear, that thing which we thought and believed to be permanent. We have seen the monuments of our nation, of our national success, turned into smoking rubble in one morning with a couple of planes and a few dedicated zealots. We've had space shows explode, markets collapse, leaders fall from grace. Individually, each of us has suffered loss, which we weren't sure we'd ever recover from. Not too long ago, as much as we're trying to forget it, we spent basically an entire year indoors. Do you remember how surreal it was to see stadiums were empty, Times Square had no people in it, hospitals were using tents and parking lots to try and triage the sick? None of that should have happened. Right? What is going on? What can we count on? These are all apocalypses. They're all apocalypses because they pull back the curtain on that which was never permanent despite our best efforts to pretend otherwise. An apocalypse is an event in which all that we have around us and that makes us feel invulnerable is quickly taken away and shown to be the false security that it is. And while we may not require instructions on what to do when Jerusalem falls in 70 AD, we could all use a little instruction and guidance for the ends of our world. And it seems to me that Jesus does a good job of addressing it in a way that we can take today. It seems to me that Jesus warns us all not to locate our faith in a couple of places that tend to be our favorite locations. First, Jesus indicates and warns us not to locate our faith in that which we have built. Again, to those who Jesus was speaking to, there was nothing more permanent than this temple that they're looking at. It was a gobsmacking architectural achievement, even before it was sanctified with God's own presence, right? It was the pillar at the center of the world as far as they were concerned. That cornerstone could not, would not go away. It was the middle of who they were and what they were going to do in history. And yet it was disposed of in short order when the powers that be decided to act against it. Whatever we build can be quickly knocked down. Moth and rust destroy, Scripture tells us. Thieves break in and steal, right? We know uh, very well here, tornadoes can come quickly and level things. Supporters can become critics. Bombs can drop. One day, my house will be gone. One day, my office will be gone. One day, Ecclesia as an institution will not be what it is now, and it won't be here one day. This room won't be here one day despite all the beautiful stones uh, that adorn it, or painted brick, whatever. Don't have much rubies and stuff embedded here, but you get my point. We should not attribute permanence to that which cannot hold it. It's okay to build things. It's noble to be good stewards of that which we build. Just do not make those things what they should not and cannot be, the holders of our faith, the things that give us security. And I know that's a discombobulating feeling. I know that makes us feel vulnerable to talk about the things that are most steady for us in that way. I know it makes us feel at risk. 
And when we are feeling at risk, it is important that we especially listen to Christ's second warning. Not only does he tell us not to put faith in that which we have built because it can be torn down, he also says do not trust the people who boldly claim they know how to fix whatever is wrong. Do not trust the people who boldly claim they know how to fix whatever is wrong. And Perhaps this is the strongest word for us today in our time in history. Because any time there is an apocalypse, real or imagined, there are little saviors that start popping up everywhere. They claim to have special knowledge. They offer special security in the midst of the very chaos upon which they are dependent and often need to amplify. They will tell you who to blame, and they will invite you to be with them and the other good guys. Right? They are commentators and they are critics. They make easy answers out of impossibly difficult situations. They will offer you all the safety of being right without any of the responsibility of humbly serving those that they've decided are the scapegoats. They decry the very apocalypses they promote and profit from. We know these, these folks. They will read the tea leaves. They will organize your sense of frustration, all while helping to grow it. They are politicians claim to have the solution that no one else can possibly have. They are TV preachers who have cracked the code about what God really wants, and they'll happily give it to you for a price. They are the YouTube prognosticators who have never encountered the inevitable humility that accompanies the actual study of something. These are the doomsayers who tell you that the world is getting worse and worse, even in moments when all evidence points to the contrary. I wanted to really deep in, dive deep into this, but it'll have to be a different time because there, there is something about our culture right now where if you, uh, when you see any studies that are out there, anything where they're going out and they're asking people, everyone thinks the world is getting worse. And in most measurable ways in the last 50 years, it's getting better. Right? Extreme poverty is lower than it ha ever has been. Hunger, child mortality, violent crime, those have all been dropping for a long time with some small rebounds during uh, the last couple of years uh, during the pandemic. Education rates are up, literacy rates are up, renewable energy is used more, life expectancy, all going up. But the chaos capitalists can't keep you watching if they give you those kind of stats. So they just keep us fearing apocalypses, sometimes imagined. But for all these self-proclaimed saviors, Jesus tells us, beware, stay away. Don't get comfortable with them because they aren't what you think. The fact is that Jesus offers no easy answers to any apocalypse, no set way to frame or think about them. And if Jesus doesn't have an easy answer for it, I think we can safely say no one else does either. In fact, I would argue that Jesus is not really in the business of giving easy or correct answers to the apocalypses we face. In fact, Jesus seems less concerned with giving us answers or explaining it. In fact, he doesn't answer the question at all in this text today that is asked of him. Jesus seems more concerned to show the right way to live in their midst. And at this point in his ministry, he's already spent all of his time doing just that. That we can know. We can know the way, if we don't, even if we don't understand the why. In the midst of all of our apocalypses, we know we should 
proclaim repentance and forgiveness like we see in Luke 24. We should welcome the powerless and the vulnerable like we see in Luke 6. We should celebrate forgiveness of our enemies. We should attract persecution because of our love of God and others. We should attend the parties that celebrate the return home of those we dislike the most. We should love our enemies and pray for our persecutors and on and on and on. Jesus doesn't give us the answers. Jesus gives us the way. All of these and more are the way we are called to live. And that call to live that way doesn't change when the apocalypse shows up. They remain the way when things are not uh, going as planned. They remain the way when the apocalypse hits us. The correct response will always be and has always been humility, grace, and love. These are the things Scripture tells us remain. No thief can break in and steal. Moth and rust cannot destroy. So tonight as we commit ourselves to that which actually is imperishable, Jesus can actually say with a straight face that not a hair on our head will perish. Not because the decoder ring worked or the cartoonishly large knife really did help us survive, but rather because even as we stand among the ruins of that which we thought mattered, we will have endured in the only things that really do. Let's pray.